0: Hey and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investors weekly radio show. And this week, as a special experiment in response to popular demand, most of today's program will be today's Facebook live stream, Ask Alan, with me chatting to members and answering questions. Oh, and of course, there'll be a musical birthday, someone quite special. There's just one interview today, Joe Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ, talking about this week's economic developments yesterday's inflation figures and the speech by Reserve Bank Governor Phil Lowe.
1: The headline uh, inflation rate rose by 0.2 in the quarter, which was actually well below market expectations, but really reflects some of the volatility that we've seen in fruit and vegetable prices as a result of Cyclone Debbie and how the ABS addressed that. So if we look at underlying inflation, which tends to be less volatile and is, of course, what the Reserve Bank focuses on, the Q2 numbers came in in line with market expectations with a very solid 0.5 quarterly print, which has seen annual Core inflation, remains stable at around one and three quarters percent.
0: Did you learn anything new about the state of the economy and in particular inflation out of the report?
1: Look, absolutely. I mean, we've had a very low inflation environment for a couple of years now and uh, I guess, several pieces of data that have surprised on the downside in terms of prices. But yesterday's numbers were quite encouraging in the sense that they clearly confirmed that inflation has stabilised, albeit at low levels. And there were some very small signs that inflation might be starting to nudge higher. We measure the number of items in the basket that are rising by more than uh, annualised 2.5% rate, and that diffusion index has actually ticked a little higher. So that's quite encouraging uh, when we look at uh, the outlook for inflation.
0: Do you and your colleagues believe that we've seen the bottom of inflation?
1: Look, we do think uh, we've seen the bottom, but we do expect only a very, very gradual lift from here. So uh, we do have underlying inflation remaining at the very bottom, if not slightly below the RBA's 2 to 3% band uh, through 2018. So it's still a very low inflation environment, but one where the risks of further downside shock seem to have abated.
0: There's nothing much wrong with the low inflation environment, is it? Is there?
1: Well, um, low inflation can be bad, certainly outright deflation can be bad, and the Japanese experience does tell us that, that it tends to delay consumption and can hit economic growth. And of course, we do have a central bank uh, that is inflation targeting and looks to see inflation average 2 to 3% over time.
0: Okay, so what about Dr Lowe's speech, which was a rather fuller affair? What did you learn from that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, Governor Lowe had some really interesting points. From an inflation perspective, the important one was his discussion around wages, where he confirmed that the RBA expects wage growth to remain low and to only increase from here very, very gradually, which is in line with our own forecasts. And he made the very important point that if wage growth is only 2%, it's very hard to see inflation at 2.5%, which of course is the midpoint of the RBA's band. So I think those wage comments were important. He also emphasised the framework uh, for monetary policy and the influence that financial stability concerns play in that. And I think that is really important. And that just highlights that developments in the housing market over the next six months or so will be as important as developments in inflation in terms of policy setting.
0: He also made the point that these are challenging times for central banks.
1: Uh, look, they are absolutely challenging times. And the challenges that we're facing in Australia are not unique uh, when we look at other economies around the world. And that is that growth looks OK, uh, but inflation's very weak. And, of course, there's several economies that are also facing very strong house price growth and financial stability concerns around the level of household debt as well. So there's a lot of varying factors and a real balancing act for policymakers. <laughs>
0: One of my favourite parts of the week is the chat with members every Thursday on Facebook where I answer questions about anything and everything. Phoebe thought it might be a good idea to podcast the audio as well so you did not have to sit down and watch. So as an experiment, we're putting it in Talking Finance. And the first question today was about property. Is it better to invest in it directly or through an ETF? I suppose it depends a bit, on Jose, on, on what sort of property you're talking about because... I'm not aware of any ETFs for residential property. So if you're talking about investing in residential property and renting that out, then I think you've got to do that directly, really. Uh, There are ways to do it indirectly, or at least in a fund. Um, I'm an investor in one of them, which is Domacom. And uh, there's another one in Sydney called... I can't remember what it's called, but you can invest in, in a property by the brick. And each of them, Domacom and the brick thing, have a secondary market. So with Domacom... Uh, you invest in a unit trust that buys the house, and then you can sell units in the trust, the secondary market that's also also run by Domacom. I think that's going slowly. They're, they're gradually picking up customers and building, you know, buying houses and so on. So it is possible to invest in residential property that way through a pooled trust, which is sort of like an ETF. There are, there are a couple of ETFs, property ETFs, on the stock exchange, uh, but they are commercial property. Obviously, there's also a whole list of real estate investment trusts, which are not quite ETFs, but similar to it. Uh, basically, an ETF invests in um, shares in proportion to their share of a particular index. So the property ETFs on the stock exchange invest in property companies, in proportion to their share of the property index. That is one way to do it, and as you say, as you imply in your question, it's a cheap way to do it. I haven't uh, looked at the costs or the the management fees of those particular ETFs, but ETF fees are are usually quite low. And also, of course, the REITs, the real estate investment trusts, uh, have generally higher fees because they're actively managed. They're not passively managed like ETFs. The, um, the managers of those trusts make decisions about which properties to buy, either offices, uh, shopping centres or uh, factories usually, which are, which are the three categories of uh, commercial property. So really, in terms of ETFs and real estate investment trusts, it's pretty much all about commercial property and you can't really invest in commercial property directly unless you've got a fair bit of money. Uh, whereas, so you know, you can buy a, an apartment for a, as little as three or four hundred thousand, probably, although that's getting harder. It's very difficult to buy a shop for less than a million, probably. I mean, you might be able to, but there aren't many vehicles for investing in commercial property directly at a low, lowish level. I mean, I, I think there are some places, some pa- places where you can buy a, a car park or something like that but on the whole you've got to have a fair bit of money to invest directly in commercial property you've really got to do that unless you're quite rich you've really got to do that through an ETF or through an investment trust that's listed on the stock exchange but they're all pretty good so there's no problem with that. Robert's got three questions let's go one at a time Uh, what are your thoughts about Australia's AAA credit rating being on tenterhooks due to federal government being unable to deal with the government deficit and major credit agencies likely to lose patience. Do you think the probability of Australia's AAA credit rating has been lo- being lowered would be increasing rather than decreasing? I do note that if this occurs, banks would have to increase lending rates to borrowers as the cost of borrowing for banks would increase as the credit rating falls. Yeah, Robert, that's true. If Australia's overall credit rating falls from AAA, then the bank's... Credit ratings would also be likely to fall because there's a flow-on and knock-on effect. And if the bank's AA credit ratings decline, uh, their cost of funds is likely to go up. So that's correct. The question is whether it's likely to happen. Well, as things stand, the credit rating agencies, Standard & Poor's Moody's and Fitch's, have all accepted the government's strategy for returning to surplus in uh, 2020. Um, and that's where things stand now. Obviously, the government is having a lot of trouble getting stuff through the Senate, and um, uh, Standard and Poor's in particular has been losing patience. Moody's has been a bit more patient, but Standard and Poor's impatient, drumming its fingers, you know, worrying about the Senate uh, obstruction uh, and the inability to um, to take expenditure out uh, and to get taxes up now and it should be okay so the government has to stick with the current strategy of getting the the budget back into surplus uh, around about uh, 2020 uh, or else there will be a downgrade I mean I would say that downgrades aren't necessarily catastrophic Um, America had one and all that happened was interest rates went down not up if things are going badly or interest rates are going up already uh, then it can exacerbate things that's for sure To be honest, the main thing is that it's a a terrible political blow to whoever's in power at the time because the opposition will beat them around the head with it. You know, that's just the way it is. And so that's why the government is so keen to to make sure that we hang on to the AAA credit rating because it'll be a tremendous loss of prestige, particularly by a conservative government, which is supposed to be the better economic managers than Labor. So, you know, the Labor Party would be gleeful if... um, if uh, the Coalition was responsible for losing our credit rating, that would be a fantastic boost to the Labor Party. As I say, I don't think it's going to happen. Robert's second question. Do you think increasing the federal government term from three to four years will allow a more stable government to improve the quality of the federal government overall with effective policies and debate on policies? This seems to be the sort of bipartisan support that the major political parties need to support to take Australian economy forward with long-term policies to improve Australia overall. Well, Robert, I must say, I admire your optimism on that score. I tell you what, I reckon it'll take more than four-year terms to produce sensible politics in Australia and sensible policies. There are four-year terms in most of the states and, of course, in America, fixed terms. They have the election first Tuesday of November every four years. Has not, as far as I can tell, resulted in an improvement in politics in America. I reckon it's gone down, right downhill, and um, I'm not sure that it's noticeably improved the um, the running of politics in the states. Uh, so, what do you, what would you get with four-year terms? Well, you wouldn't get, you know, the two-year early election situation. I reckon it goes two ways, really. It's true that this continuous cycle of elections is debilitating. That is true. I, you know you get sick to death of it and if you know that there's going to be an election every four years perhaps they won't be in the situation of campaigning all the time as they currently are. On the other hand, the threat of elections keeps everyone on their toes and the other thing is if you've got an election every four years you you can't actually chuck someone out if they're no good. Not that a terrible government is uh, likely to go to an early election so they really only go to early elections you know, when they're going well in the polls and they're likely to beat the opposition. So I suppose on balance, I guess I'd be in favour of going to four year terms. I couldn't, I can't, I think on balance is probably okay, but I think it's, um, it would be asking too much for that to be the thing that produces stable government, better policies and all that stuff. I don't think, I think that um, uh, we need more than that to achieve those things. And finally from Robert, what are your thoughts on gold and gold miners? As the US dollar weakens against all major currencies, partly due to the hawkish US Fed, it seems that the gold price is steadily strengthening. The gold price has been strengthening over time because governments everywhere, and particularly the US government, uh, the US Federal Reserve, have been kind of debauching their currency by printing so much of it, printing more of it, weakening it, Uh, The government, the Trump, wants to have a lower US dollar. The US dollar is falling, and that's leading to money going into gold. Personally, I don't like gold as an investment. I think there are some fantastic gold miners. I would never, personally, I would never invest in gold. I don't understand it. I think it's no longer really a safe haven. I don't understand why anyone thinks that gold is a good place to invest. It doesn't pay any yield. And... It's just, to my mind, another commodity, and really, you're investing in Indian and Chinese jewellery in particular, and also demand from the, from them for just to have to have the stuff. And so, it's not something I, I kind of get. However, there, there are some really terrific uh, miners of gold who are efficient, have low costs, and are making good money and are likely to make good money unless there's a, a catastrophic collapse in the gold price. We've got some of those on our website and we've got uh, three gold stocks, Resolute Mining, Gold Road and Saracen. Uh, Paul Hissey he gives us a bit of a rundown of um, uh, the gold stocks and his gold picks, Saracen, Resolute and Gold Road. I think there are good reasons to invest in gold companies. I don't think there's a good reason to invest in gold. James asks, can you tell me more about the Phillips Curve, which has been mentioned a few times this week? I understand that once unemployment reaches a particular level, uh, that wages growth is supposed to rise. Is that correct? How does it work? Well, Phillips Curve was kind of invented by a bloke named William Phillips, who was a New Zealand economist, in 1958. He put out a paper that was about the connection between unemployment and inflation, not wages but inflation, although obviously it's... Inflation, in a sense, is, a, is an outgrowth or a, a consequence of wages growth. So, yes, uh, so basically what Phillips was on about was this connection between the level of unemployment and the level of inflation, which he proposed was an inverse relationship. That is to say, the higher unemployment is, the lower inflation is, and vice versa. So that's, it's a simple kind of inverse relationship expressed in a curve, Milton Friedman then came out in the uh, in the 60s and 70s and said, actually, it's all rubbish. Uh, the Phillips curve will um, predict the short term, but not the long run. And Friedman correctly predicted what became known as stagflation, which is when unemployment and inflation both rise at the same time, which is what happened in the 70s after the first and second oil shocks. So what you had then was rising inflation and rising unemployment as there was a recession, a recession with high inflation at the same time. And that kind of disproved the Phillips curve. And I think, um, you know, there's basically, there's a lot of controversy around the Phillips curve. And one of the problems, I think, with current modern central banking is that they still adhere to it in a way. I mean, obviously central banks don't target unemployment. They do target inflation, and the current, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia, for example, has an inflation target of two to three percent, but they still think that that is mostly influenced by unemployment, and they have what's called the NERU, which, is, uh, which stands for the non-accelerating inflation rate in, of unemployment, which is to say the level of unemployment that does not accelerate inflation and they still kind of wonder about what that is. You know, what is the level of unemployment that's not going to put inflation up and they don't quite know anymore and all this stuff. And I reckon that the Phillips curve is finished. I mean, I think that the relationship between unemployment and inflation is over now. I mean, because we've got, particularly in the US, a little bit less so here, but certainly here as well, we've got the opposite of the stagflation that occurred in the 70s. We've got low inflation and low unemployment. And so uh, the Phillips curve has actually been disproved both on the up and the down. Uh, on the up when we had stagflation and now when we've got both low unemployment and low uh, inflation. Bill Phillips has been immortalised in the, in, the, in the expression of the Phillips curve but I reckon it's finished. It, um, it only works some of the time uh, and does not work all of the time. John asks, G'day John, uh, hi Alan, I see the US dollar has just cracked 80 cents, you mean the Australian dollar of course, and the Australian dollar has indeed cracked 80 cents uh, this morning and uh, the reason it did that, uh, having fallen below 79 yesterday, when I was on the news last night I reported that the, US, the Australian dollar at that point was 78.9 and had fallen below um, 79 yesterday because of the... Uh, weaker than expected CPI number um, and also Philip Lowe's speech so there was a, a bit of downward pressure on the dollar yesterday which led it to go below 79 it went above 80 overnight at about 5 a.m. this morning in fact uh, because uh, the Federal Reserve um, came out with its new, its latest monetary policy statement following its um, meeting and uh, didn't um, uh, did not increase interest rates. Now, it wasn't really that, the fact that they didn't hike rates, because um, that was expected. Nobody really expected them to uh, put up interest rates. But it was the, the statement was regarded as somewhat dovish, as they say, which is the opposite of hawkish. And dovish means that they were a bit, it made the markets readjust their thinking about when the next rate hike in the US would be. Uh, so they've kind of pushed pushed it out a bit, you know. Reading the tea leaves, the in between the lines and all that stuff, they kind of pour over the Federal Reserve's statements. The markets have uh, determined that there's uh, less likely to be a, an immediate rate hike in the U.S., and so the um, U.S. dollars come down quite a bit overnight. And as a result, the Australian dollar went up. So this morning's. Increase in the Australian dollar to above 80 cents was entirely due to a fall in the U.S. dollar, uh, which really underlies the whole increase in the Australian dollar this year, uh, which has been quite a lot actually. Isn't it? I mean, the Australian, the Australian dollar has been pretty strong. It's gone up from uh, 69 to now 80, uh, so it's a good solid 15-16% increase, pretty much mostly due to U.S. dollar weakness from January the first. So that's the number one thing. We've also had some strength in commodity prices, particularly in the last little while, last week or so, iron ore prices have been strong, oil's been strong. So Australia, uh, the Australian dollar is still seen pretty much as a commodity currency. So when commodities go up in price, that that underpins the Australian dollar. Uh, But fundamentally, it's about the existing differential between Australian and US interest rates, but more importantly, the expected differential and Australian interest rates are expected to stay the same for another 12 months at least and uh, US interest rates are expected to go up. Now, if anything changes, if US interest rates are expected to not go up quite as quickly, uh, then the US dollar weakens, which is what happened last night. Inga says, G'day Inga. Hello Alan, what are your thoughts on cash positions as a proportion of total investments currently? Uh, Obviously, Everyone's asset allocation needs to be fairly personal. It depends on your own circumstances, your risk tolerances and your aims. So it's a bit hard to generalise. I think it's always worth having cash positions, particularly as the market gets more and more expensive. So you're in a position to take advantage of opportunities that arise uh, and do some buying because if you're 100% invested, you you can't buy anything. So the markets are a little bit, Expensive at the moment. Uh, share prices in general are a bit more expensive than average. Not much. I mean, not you know, not excessively so. Particularly in Australia, there's a fair bit of talk that the American market is very overvalued. I'm not sure that's true, but a lot of people think the American market is uh, very overvalued. I suspect it's not that overvalued. And in any case, most of the increase in the value of the entire American market is due to the massive increases in the share prices of Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, and Netflix, the so-called FANG group. And I think that the valuations of those companies are kind of um, irrelevant. They're growing so quickly that the, the usual PEs don't really apply. And they tend to increase the average PE. We're in a position at the moment, possibly won't last that long, we're in a position where you can't really look at valuations too much, which is the sort of thing that should drive one's assessment of how much cash to hold. Because if a market is too expensive, if it's high in valuation, then you would normally have quite a, a large or a larger than usual cash balance. So, for example, if you usually tried to keep 5 or 10% in cash, when the markets are expensive, you'd go okay. Well, I'll be 20%, or even more, 25, 30% in cash, because you would expect the markets to come back in price, and you obviously want to be in a position to uh, to do some buying. Um, so at the moment, uh, I think cash positions should be a little bit higher than usual. That's, I guess, what I'd say uh, in general. Not a lot higher. You know, you wouldn't certainly you wouldn't go to something like 50% cash. But um, a little bit higher than normal, because the markets are a little bit more expensive, as I say that's each person's own uh, portfolio allocations are a matter for them uh, it's, and it's very difficult to generalize because everyone's got different uh, different aims, different risk tolerances, and so on. Dominic says, any thoughts on redflow RFX, the new battery company I haven't bought any myself I've known Simon Hackett who Runs and kind of controls the business. Uh, I've known him for a long time. I like him. I like him a lot. I think he's a really interesting guy and he made a lot of money in, with Internode. He started the um, uh, ISP in Adelaide called Internode. He was the first, I think he probably was the first driver of a Tesla in Australia. He bought the roadster when it first came out and was whizzing around, whizzing silently around Adelaide streets in uh, his Tesla Roadster and I think he's got probably got half a dozen of them now because he sold internode to IINet for a hundred million dollars and he owned it. So that was a hundred million bucks that uh, Simon made and he's put a lot of that into Redflow. Now, Redflow is a battery company but it's not lithium it's zinc bromide and it's called a flow battery so it's liquid, a sort of a zinc bromide solution that washes around the electrodes Bit like a car battery. Uh, In fact, it's very much like a car battery, although car batteries, um, I'm not a chemical engineer, so don't hold me to this. But car batteries I don't think are zinc bromide, but this thing that RFX Redflow has got is zinc bromide, and they are good for sort of long term uh, stable batteries. You can't put them in a car because they slosh around, there's liquid in them, but you can. Uh, use them to power, for example, uh, mobile phone towers. Uh, So you have a solar thing, you know, a solar PV uh, panels, and the uh, power gets stored in a Redflow or bromide battery because it's more efficient, says Simon, anyway, more efficient, lasts longer and so on. But the trouble is, you know, I think they're getting blown out of the water a bit by lithium-ion. I mean, it's just everyone's all about lithium, not zinc bromide. And so uh, uh, Redflow's, Redflow's share price has been a shocker. It's been terrible. i just have a look at it on my little iris screen here. So Redflow's now down to 12.75 cents. And it got up to uh, 60 cents last year, a year ago it was. In fact, in July last year, it was 50 cents. So anyway, it's, it's you know it's come all the way down to 12 cents, and so it's been a, a cruel ride for for Simon and for his investors. I don't know what Simon paid, to be honest, but he's um, I'd say he's out of the money now, and you know he's uh, still optimistic, still reckons it's all going to come good, it'll be fine. Yeah, maybe. I think Simon's whole strategy has been that there'll be a place for, you know, in the kind of the world of batteries in the future, there'll be a place for all of them and that there'll be a place for zinc bromide to do certain jobs while lithium does the rest. Uh, we'll see. So I don't know that I've been all that helpful. <laughs> I like and admire uh, Simon, I think he's um, he's good. Matthew says, Hi, Alan. Now that there are two suitors for Vocus, how do you see the share price jump above the share offering of $3.50, a positive or negative? Well, obviously, um, the market reckons there'll be an auction for Vocus, and maybe there will. Um, And I think it's great for shareholders that there's an auction going on. It's fantastic. It's certainly a positive, that's for sure, uh, that the share price has gone above $3.50. My friend Tom Elliott always says that... um, Whenever there's an offer for a company, it's a good time to buy after the first offer has been announced because there's always more. And it always goes above, or well, most of the time anyway. Not always, but most of the time. Uh, there may be more offers. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. And they're not going to tell me either. I mean, nobody nobody reveals this stuff, whether they've got something up their sleeve. They always say, this is our absolute final offer. We'll never make another offer. And of course, then they say, oh, well, actually, Here's another offer. Paul says, what do you think about the capital raising at BGA? The price offer is $5.25 a share. I haven't looked at it, to be honest, Paul. What's BGA's price right now? its six ninety-two. There you go. Well, that's a discount. That's pretty good. That's a good discount. Obviously, that will get the market price down, but uh, I think BGA's a fantastic company. I think their purchase of um, Vegemite is great. I think they're... Their export strategy is good. I'm, uh, I'm fans. I'm a fan of BGA, and Barry Irvin, the uh, chairman. I think uh, he's he's terrific, and we should get him back on. We've had him once, and um, I think it probably is time we got him back on to talk about what he's going to do with Vegemite, apart from eat it. Happy birthday, Bobby Gentry, 72 today. Roberta Lee Streeter, as she was christened was the first country music singer to write her own material and she was so smart she ended up studying philosophy. Her best and best-known song was Ode to Billy Joe which caused quite a stir at the time.
1: It was the third
0: of June, another
1: sleepy dusty delta
0: day I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay Time We stopped and walked back to the house to eat And Mama hollered at the back door Y'all remember to wipe your feet And then she said I got some news this morning From Choctaw Ridge Today Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge Thanks, as always, to my team here at The Constant Investor and to ISM Studios for the music. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, but please let me know either way. And meanwhile, I'll be back popping up in your inbox on Saturday morning.